Welcome to episode 89 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is the first 40 miles. Today on the first 40 miles, with Summer Olympics coming soon, we have one question on our minds. Why isn't backpacking an Olympic sport? Then on today's top five list, we'll peruse an issue of Backpacker Magazine from 40 years ago and see what catches our eye. On Ready for Adventure, the Olympics do have backpacking, and anyone can go. On the Backpack Hack of the Week, we'll share a listener's life hack. And we'll wrap up the show with our good friend on the trail, Horace Kephart. All this and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. Well, the 2016 Summer Olympics start in just a week and a half. They start on August 5th and the Paralympics follow about a month later on September 7th. And I don't know about you, but the Olympics were a big deal in my house. My family was totally not into sports. Actually, I do know about you because I've been married to you for a while. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I don't know about you, total stranger standing across from me. But As you know, <laughs> my family was totally not into sports. We didn't watch football, baseball, basketball, any of that. I think we went to like two Mariners games while I was growing up, uh, like at the stadium. Never watched them on TV, but we watched the Olympics every four years, Winter Olympics and then the Summer Olympics. Those were a big deal in our house. Same here. And we had our favorite events, you know, like we always watched the gymnastics. Uh, we always watched the diving. That was a big one. And well, this isn't a summer event, but we always watched the ice skating. Yeah, same here in the winter. And uh, yeah, I think swimming and gymnastics were kind of at the top of the list for us as well in the Summer Olympics. Also, the equestrian events were fun to watch. Cool. Yeah, well, the Summer Olympics have some really fascinating and fun events. There's table tennis. Um, there's Greco-Roman wrestling, which, by the way, is a men's only event. Uh, rugby, trampoline. That sounds oh. like a fun one that our family would actually enjoy watching. So with all of these amazing displays of human strength and agility and endurance, I'm wondering, why isn't backpacking an Olympic sport? Yeah, we've got backpackers who hold records. Yeah, like Jennifer Farr Davis, who held a record recently for completing the AT unassisted in record time. And I think the fascinating part of this story is that she walked it. She didn't run the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, and in the last year, we had two more records set. Scott Jurek for the fastest overall time on the AT. Yeah, he ran it a lot, and he was supported in his effort. But Heather Anish Anderson, I think she's the current record holder for the unsupported time. So backpacking isn't just for people who want to recharge. It does attract a lot of people who are out there to push the limits, conquer, and set records. I think another element that makes backpacking a great candidate for an Olympic sport is that it requires endurance. And it's also a human-powered activity. So it's not like riding motorcycles, you know, motocross, that kind of stuff. 
And the Olympics are all human-powered activities, except for well, the the horse stuff and the bike stuff. Oh, the horse stuff. The yeah. horse stuff and the bike stuff. In fact, cycling has been contested since the modern Olympic Games started in 1896, and I can see why. Cyclists do have that mechanical advantage. So why isn't it an Olympic sport? Is it like too rugged? Is it too dangerous for the Olympics? Maybe they're worried about scandal, scandal on the trail, <laughs> cutting the switchbacks. I don't know. Now I have thought about this because you know if you did a backpacking event, maybe it would be too rugged, too dangerous for what the Olympic Committee can handle. You know the courses are groomed. Everything is Olympic sized, and you know they have all their measurements and stuff. And trails tend to be more like you don't have an exact mileage for a trail. You have kind of this estimated mileage. Even the Appalachian Trail is an estimated mileage. Well, the Olympics have the canoe slalom course, basically canoeing through whitewater rapids. That sounds dangerous. Yeah, and a little bit unpredictable. Or maybe a lot unpredictable. Yeah, I guess depending on the flow, you know the. Although I see from watching those, I think they actually do have a pretty tight control over flow. And I mean, I, I've seen some some whitewater events that are completely man-made. So yeah, I don't know. I, it'd be hard to do a completely man-made course for backpacking. Yeah, and the people who would want to do backpacking wouldn't want a man-made course. Exactly. No, I looked at the mountain biking course because I was like, "Oh, mountain biking—that sounds like it might be similar to a track that they might use for a backpacking event." But you don't go through the mountains, even though it's called mountain biking. You go across these boulders that are stacked up the way that the Olympic Committee wants them stacked up, and then you just go around this course that has different grades and. Curves and yeah, it's it's not really mountain biking. Yeah, so when you look at it, most of the course is actually man-made. They've placed all these different components in specific spots to give a particular difficulty to the course. Well, are there any other events in the Olympics that are similar to backpacking? You know, I was thinking the athletics. You know, like all of the track events, somewhat similar. You're using your legs and moving forward. There's another event that I think is more closely tied to backpacking. Maybe it doesn't include the same events that we do while we're out, but it's an example of a well-rounded activity. It's called the pentathlon, and it takes the five skills that a soldier needs and wraps them all up into one event. So it includes pistol shooting, fencing, swimming, horse riding, and running. And you may not do all five of these things while you're out camping, but you could come up with a similar pentathlon that would match what you do while you're backpacking, like tent pitching, fire starting, <laughs> first aid, pack hoisting. Yeah, there's lots <laughs> of different events that you could do. But this pentathlon is kind of interesting because it was believed that this event was a good test of a man's moral qualities and his physical resources and skills. That would produce this complete athlete. So, if you can come up with five events, maybe we can pitch this to the Olympic Committee: the backpacking pentathlon. You know, I have another theory about why backpacking is not an Olympic event, and that's because it doesn't lend itself to spectator viewing. Sports and events 
have been altered so that they can accommodate spectators. So I suppose if you wanted to make backpacking an Olympic event, the spectators would all have to kind of hike behind you. I think this is the main reason that there's no backpacking events in the Olympics. I mean, we go backpacking for a day or multiple days. Now, how do you follow an event like that with an audience and even with a TV audience? I, that would be tough to do. Take a lot of producing on the part of the Olympic Committee or, or those, you know, the media who track these events and, and televise them. I suppose you could have check-in points. Yeah. But a, a game is easy. You know, you televise this game at a certain time. It takes a couple hours and it's done. And if you're, if you're following these backpackers that are competing on a trail and it's going to take them a couple of days to complete the trail, it's going to be pretty hard to predict where the interesting moments are going to be time-wise, you know, and fit that into like a television broadcast schedule. Another reason I think backpacking is not an Olympic sport is because it goes counter to what backpackers do on the trail. So if you had, you know, like uh, a bunch of backpackers from all these different countries hiking down the trail, it would be counter to their nature to see one of their trail mates get injured or something and just hike by. Be like, sorry, I'm on my way to the gold. Or another way to put it is uh, backpacking is more of a man versus nature yes. experience. And the Olympic Games are designed to be man versus man, like who is the strongest, the fastest, etc. Backpacking, it's like we're not really worried about who's stronger than whom. It's that opportunity to take whatever nature throws at you and respond to it right? and, and, and learn and grow from it. So we're probably not going to see backpacking in the Olympics anytime soon. But the great news is that all of us have the opportunity to go backpacking and experience it ourselves, just be out there. And depending on our personalities, we may push ourselves just as if we were competing in the Olympics, or we may just sit back and relax and, and just enjoy being out in nature. For today's top five list, we are going retro. I happened to stumble across old issues of Backpacker Magazine that are cataloged on Google Books. And so it goes way back. And you can look at the actual pages that have been digitized from all the old issues. So we went back 40 years to the August 1976 issue of Backpacker Magazine. And we pulled out five ads that caught our eye. It was fun to see how they described new technologies. And many of those technologies are commonplace nowadays. Companies were just introducing them at that time and having to explain them and relate them to some existing technology at the time to help people figure out what it even was that they were selling. So the first ad that we want to share with you is for the Camp Trail's new Sandorak sleeping bag. It will give you the one up on down because it's not made of down. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. I love it because they they use this superior Selenese Fortrail Polyguard polyester insulation. Not only that, but it's 1.9 ounce ripstop with Zappel, which is supposed to look like repel with a Z, and so it has this stain repellent coating and five inches of uniform loft. Now, when they put that much synthetic loft from 1976 into a sleeping bag, you know this isn't going to weigh less than five pounds. Yeah. Well, this sleeping bag straps onto the outside of your pack because... 
not just because you have an external frame pack, but because there is no room for this thing inside of your pack. Yeah, I love the last line of this ad, though. It says, duck into your camp trails dealer and ask to see our full line of sleeping bags. He won't let you down. Ha ha ha. And isn't it funny, 40 years later, we still don't have a synthetic insulation that's better than down. It's true. Well, the number two ad that caught our eye was from the North Face, which, by the way, has the same logo today as it had 40 years ago. And it was introducing the first geodesic design in backpackable shelter, the North Face Oval Intention. It sounds like it's going to be great. I have no idea what an oval intention is, but translation, dome tent. Dome tent. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) This was an eight and a half pound dome tent that could sleep three people. And that was the first geodesic design in backpackable shelter. An eight and a half pound backpackable shelter. Wow. I hope it's something that you could split up between three people because that is quite a weight commitment. Oh, you certainly could. The, The tent, the fly and the poles. It had plenty of poles, so you could send all the poles with one person and they'd they'd have their fair share. <laughs> it doesn't look like it has a rain fly. It does include the fly in the total weight. Okay. Fly, pins, poles, and tent. I assume the pins are the stakes. Pins. I've never heard stakes called pins before. Yeah. Uh, no guy lines are needed because the fly attaches to the tent. I'm suspicious of that. No guy lines? That's right. Spring clips at ground level. That's where you attach the fly. And the pole attachment arrangement is patent pending. Well, I hope they got their patent. Well, let me go to number three. The tent was eight pounds, so where do you save weight? Clothing. We've got these rugged (laughs) denim shorts from Eastern Mountain Sports. All cotton is what they're advertising. Um, Two-inch belt loop. And it looks to me like um, it's probably a two-inch inseam on these shorts as well. Yeah. These are men's shorts. No extra fabric here. Uh, They do have pockets and all that. But what was interesting to me is, uh, you know, nowadays it's just so easy to order stuff. So back then you would have to clip out this ad from Eastern Mountain Sports out of your backpacker magazine and stick it in an envelope along with $14.50, which, by the way, would be about $60 today. So you would enclose either a check or a money order and mail that off to Eastern Mountain Sports. Of course, you would check the little box on the order form that says, please rush my denim shorts and EMS catalog. And you'd write down your size and your name and address, send it off. And I guess a few weeks later, you'd get a pair of shorts in the mail, along with a catalog from Eastern Mountain Sports. Well, I'm curious, does the 1450 include shipping and handling? Yes, it must. Wow, what a deal. I'm going to jump right on that. That's great. Well, if you don't want the shorts, you can just send them a dollar check or money order. Okay, maybe you could just throw in a dollar bill. I don't know. And they'll send you a catalog. I think the catalog would cover more than those shorts would. Uh, Yeah, it would. <laughs> the next ad that we found irresistible was an ad by Clear Creek, and they're a tent manufacturer. This ad is for a tent called the O-Give. And I love it because it's this little pup tent and a guy with curly, shaggy hair sitting in front of it with his girlfriend sitting on top of the pup tent. (laughs) So obviously this is, as they claim, the world's strongest tent. And in case you're one of those pound weenies, not just a gram weenie, this weighs seven and a half pounds, so you're not going to lug around that extra pound like you would with the North Face geodesic tent. 
Yeah, although that extra pound gives you space for an extra person. The Ogive tent is only a two-person tent. Yeah, that's true, but this one looks a lot easier to assemble. Yeah, you've got that. Just two poles, plus if I get tired, I can sit on top of the tent and just relax. Well, that's always nice. Yeah. Well, it only costs $175 if you're living in 1976. If you want to buy it today, with today's dollars, $740. Yikes. Which puts all of our backpacking gear into perspective. When you adjust for inflation, I mean, $740 could buy you a really, really nice, ultra-lightweight two-person tent. What I like about this tent is that it comes in three different colors, Gold, rust, or green. Those just sound like classic tent colors from 1976. Well, they certainly are. Well, our number five product is only available in forest green. Which is okay because it's for the forest, right? You use it in a forest. Yeah. This fifth ad that caught our attention was from Holubar Mountaineering. And it, it was a pack, their Colorado frame pack. You know, it looks pretty much like uh, most external frame packs from back then. It didn't really have a top bar coming up above the pack bag, uh, but it's got that space below the pack bag where you'd strap on your sleeping bag and your tent. And, you know, it's got some outside pouches and stuff. Holobar isn't around anymore, but they were an innovative high-end backpacking or mountaineering gear company, you know, all the way into the 70s. They were purchased by Johnson Wax in 1975, which was a year before this ad came out in Backpacker magazine. And Johnson Wax tried to uh, reduce costs for Holobar, and that didn't work out so well because they were originally positioned as innovative high-end. And they were eventually sold to the North Face in 1981, who did away with the label uh, eventually. And, and so Holobar is no longer around. But back in 1976, you could get one of these packs for uh, $69.50, you know, just a little under $300 today. You know, as much fun as we've had with kind of pointing out the silliness in some of these ads and some of the features that seem ridiculous, I think it's really important to note that these people were some of the pioneers that made it possible for future gear improvements to be made. You know, we joke about this eight-pound tent. Well, someone had to make that eight-pound tent, and then someone else thought, what can we do to improve on that and get it down to seven pounds? All these little tweaks happened, and it took a lot of minds, a lot of capital, and a lot of outdoor time in order for the backpacking gear that we have today to happen. Yeah, we don't want to give you the impression that we think that this stuff was silly. This was the new technology of the day. A, a dome tent was a new thing up till this time. Everyone was pitching A-frames and, you know, those TP-style tents, uh, with a million guy lines going everywhere, and that's what they had. And the fabrics that exist today didn't exist back then. Uh, so denim it was, I guess. Yeah, but we've improved since then, and that's really exciting to see all the innovation that's happened, and it's happened because of these backpacking pioneers. Well, every once in a while, we swap out our Summit Gear Review for a Ready for Adventure segment, where we go through the steps of preparing for a backpacking adventure. So today we'll be preparing for a trip to the Olympic National Park, and we'll be doing the Flapjack Lakes Trail. And this is for all of you who think backpacking should be in the Olympics. Well, now with the proper permit, it is. Well, this is a trip that's in the Olympic Mountain Range in Washington State, about 50 miles east of Seattle. So it's a little bit to the eastern side of the Olympic Mountain Range. What was the draw for you? You know, what attracted you to pick the Flapjack Lakes Trail? 
Well, I was talking to my friend a couple weeks ago, and she said, Guess what? I'm doing my first backpacking trip. And she was so excited. Her and her husband are going to be doing the Flapjack Lakes Trail. And I have never been to the Olympic National Park. So when she told me about this trip, I just thought, wait a minute, I'm a semi-native Pacific Northwesterner. I've lived in the Seattle area and the Portland area for a good percentage of my life. How have I never made it over to the Olympic National Park? It's an amazing place. Uh, Everything, you know, from the ocean to the mountains that are so tall for being so close to the ocean, to the rainforest, uh, just a rich ecosystem there. So I've heard, (laughs) but I've never seen. (laughs) It's fairly steep because you start out close to sea level and then the lakes are about 4,000 feet above sea level. So you gain 3,200 feet in the seven and a half miles, which is a moderate climb, but the first four miles are fairly flat. So you're actually covering nearly 3,000 feet in the last three and a half miles. Well, Heather, where did you find information about this trail? I mean, so now we know, we know where it is, we know how long, we know the elevation gain. Where did you go to get you know, all the other details to, to get a really good picture of what this hike is going to be like. Well, I talked to my friend who's planning this trip to Flapjack Lakes, and she kept calling it Pancake Lakes. So I thought I'd better get some solid information online. Um, she gave me some really great information, though, um, about the permit process. So um, I thought that was really helpful. But online, I just turned to nps.gov, and they have a great page about the Olympic National Park. So that was a great resource. Um, but then I found another website that I have not used before that I thought was really helpful. It's called rootsrated.com. And... It's a website that connects people with outdoor experiences, and it's not crowdsourced trail reviews. It's actually pages that are written by local experts. So it has really detailed, specific information, and it's not just for backpacking either. It's for lots of different outdoor activities, some of which I'm not quite familiar with, like fat biking. Are you familiar with fat biking? Bikes with fat tires. You can ride them on the beach. Um, There's also bikes for riding on the snow. Okay, yeah, I've seen those, but okay. Well, fat biking. Um, Coastal paddling. You heard of that before? I mean, I can get a kind of picture in my mind of what it probably is, but... Right, people in kayaks uh, out among the haystacks on the Olympic coast. Yeah, all right. Well, anyway, they have a whole bunch of different outdoor activities that are connected with over 30 cities in the United States. So if you're going to be somewhere, say you're going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, and you want to do some trail running, you'll be able to find resources. If you want to do backpacking in Seattle, you can look it up on Roots Rated. And we will have the link in the show notes today. And you'll find that at thefirst40miles.com slash 089. Another website that I went to to get information on the Flapjack Lakes was protrails.com. And, you know, it's funny. You would think that all the information for Flapjack Lakes would be on the National Park Service website. But you find a lot, just different little pieces of the puzzle by going to these different sites because they all prioritize something different. So going to each of these different sites was really helpful in getting the big picture for what my experience at Flapjack Lakes would be like. You mentioned there's a permit required to do this trip. And, you know, that's one of the steps when you're preparing for a backpacking trip. You say, okay, what permits do I need? 
Are there any fees? Do I need a parking pass? Can I leave my vehicle overnight? You know, all those questions come up. So what did you find for Flapjack Lakes? Well, to get into the park itself, there's a $20 entrance fee. And then if you want to backpack and camp overnight, then you need a permit. And this kind of adds this really cool level of anticipation to the trip because not all permit requests are granted. And so you put in this permit request and then you wait to find out if you are one of the lucky ones. And for this particular park, the permit snatching frenzy starts after March 15th. That's when you can put in your permit reservation request. And if they accept your application, they'll let you know within a week via email. Let's talk about the application itself. What do you need to put on there? A permit reservation request is actually pretty easy. Start off with an essay about why you feel you would make a great backpacker in their park. You send your college and high school transcripts. True. What's really on the application? It's pretty much the basic stuff. Name, address, city, country, email, the number of adults and kids that you will have with you. Um, your itinerary, so how long you'll be staying and where you'll be staying, and which trailhead you'll be starting off in, and the trailhead you'll be exiting from, and then you put payment information on there also. So in order to fill out this application, you need to have done some planning to know your dates and to know, you know, for every night, what campsite are we staying at. Now for a quick uh, overnighter, like Flapjack Lakes, in and out pretty easy to say, hey, we want to show up on this day. We're going to spend the night at Flapjack Lakes and come back out the next day. Yeah, I think the hard thing about doing a permit would be like, say you're just going to be doing an overnighter, which is possible with this hike. You just hike in seven and a half, hike out seven and a half. But what if you get up there and you're at the lakes and you're like, and you love it. Oh, can we just have one more day? That's kind of the I guess the downside of the permit process is yeah. you're, you're pretty much trapped by your permit. You've committed to come back out the next day. Yeah. For this particular hike to Flapjack Lakes, 100% of the quota sites are reservable. Other hikes in the Olympics are also 100% reservable, but some are only 50% reservable, which means that the other 50% are first come, first served. So you're saying there are some spots we can go in the Olympic National Park where we wouldn't need to make right. a reservation request? Yeah, we would just show up and hopefully we would be one of the first come right. and first served. Fingers crossed, yeah. Right. It is kind of risky, but uh, it is possible. As I was looking through some of these resource websites that we talked about, I saw that you can fish at the Flapjack Lakes. And a Washington State fishing license is not required to fish in the Olympic National Park, except when you're fishing from the shore into the Pacific Ocean. But if you just want to fish in the lake, you don't need a license. Yeah, I, I looked that up and yeah. sure enough, it's true. Yeah. In fact, no license is required to harvest surf smelt. Have you ever heard of surf smelt? Never heard of surf smelt. Yes, they're a small blue fish with a little white hat. There's Papa Surf Smelt, Brainy Surf Smelt, Surprise Surf Smelt. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, just a couple other things on fishing regulations. Uh, you know, you can look up all the details on the National Park Service website. 
If you're going to fish for salmon, then you do need a Washington State salmon punch card, even though you don't need the fishing license. If you're going to go for shellfish or seaweed, harvesting seaweed, you need a Washington State license for those activities. Wow. Now that is something I would love to do. Harvest seaweed because... It's nutrient-packed. Yeah. It would be a really interesting activity. I've never done it. And I think it's easier than fishing because it can't get away from you. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's what I think, too. You don't have to knock it with a bat to get it to stop wiggling. Right. Anyway, back to fishing. Uh, Bait is prohibited, so you've got to bring lures and flies, but no food-type bait. Even marshmallows? Right. That would be bait. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) Which brings me to kind of a little sidebar here. Uh, Last month, a listener posted some information on our Facebook page about tenkara fishing. It's a Japanese method of fishing that is, uh, it's a type of fly fishing method. So you've got a hook with a fly on it, but the rod has no reel. It's just a fixed length line that just comes off the tip of your rod. And it's an extremely lightweight rod that telescopes out. So it's very packable for backpacking and very easy to pack. You don't have to worry about the reel getting in the way. Telescope that out and you've got great... um, I don't flicking. know, leverage, yeah, the, it, the, the flicking, flicking power, the bounce yeah. of this rod because it's so thin and you just pop your fly out, you know, on a, on a stream somewhere. And, and so it's this form of fly fishing that's just much simplified by taking away the rod and just having the fixed length line. Sounds oh. really uh, intriguing to me. Yeah, it does. And then if we don't have a ten, tenakara or tenkara? Tenkara. Okay, so if we don't have a tenkara rod, we can just snap the antenna off of like an old radio and we're in business. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Cool. I want to try it. So moving on, uh, what else is important to know about this particular trail? Uh, there are bears, so make sure you bring a bear bin. There are community bear wires that are available at the Flapjack Lakes, and that's where you would hang your food between trees. They have these wires that are already set up. So a bear bin or a bear bag or something to keep your food off the ground and away from the bears. In fact, even more troublesome than the bears are the raccoons there. And that's a huge problem out by the coast. Like the closer you get to the coast, you'll need a bear canister just to protect your food from the raccoons. Well, we've talked quite a bit about the kind of the technical stuff of this hike, Uh, the permits, how long it is, the elevation gain, watching out for bears. Let's wrap up with what the experience is going to be like. After you gain nearly 4,000 feet, you'll end up camping in a subalpine lake basin surrounded by montane forest. This is where the forest is getting smaller. The trees are a little smaller and thinner than what you're going to find down along the water. You're right up near the tree line, and these lake basins It's hard to come up with words to describe how you feel when you sit or stand in one of these basins, because it's been carved out by a glacier in such a way that you've got a slope coming down to one side of the lake, you've got the lake, and then just this edge, and then a slope going down on the other side. And so you can look across the lake from one side and you'll see a big mountain behind it. If you look across the lake from the other side, you'll see nothing behind it. It's just situated right on the edge, and the mountain just drops off below the lake. 
And it's an amazing experience to get up there in these subalpine lakes that have been carved out by glaciers so many years ago. You don't see that if you don't go backpacking. Well, it'll be fun to get a trail report from my friend after she gets back from this trip. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, we wanted to share something from one of our first 40 milers. So many of our Backpack Hack of the Week hacks are designed to do something really simple, like save a little money or use some common household item in a unique way on the trail. But one of our first 40 milers clued us in on a hack that's been under our noses the entire time. Yeah, backpacking itself is a hack. Yeah, this was on Twitter, uh, Jay Reed. His Twitter handle is daddypants1220. He was uh, having a conversation with someone else on Twitter, uh, mentioning how after a lot of day hiking, he's finally hoping to make the leap to backpacking. And he said, hiking and camping is a great multi-use activity because it's great for both physical and mental health. So true. Backpacking is a hack in itself. I guess the benefits would be too great to list, but you get that clarity, solitude, connection, memories, uh, rejuvenation, like he said, both mentally and physically, and you get a sense of accomplishment. So there you go, backpacking. It's a life hack that keeps you healthy. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Horace Kephart. He said, The man with the knapsack is never lost. No matter whither he may stray, his food and shelter are right with him, and home is wherever he may choose to stop. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, then get outside or start planning your next adventure. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles. Pretend that there's a TV camera zooming in on you from across the lake. And you can even sing your own country's national anthem and, yes, make it a very special, special event for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, it way er, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Ooh. Oh, man. <laughs> I just got super excited there. <laughs>